0: y'all got what y'all need y'all settle down we'll get started and okay tonight we're going to talk on witchcraft and how it pertains to the end times and what i was going to talk about is witchcraft is something that you're just seeing come on everybody it's just kind of all over the place and so i was going to talk about something And in the minute, you'll see what I'm talking about. But it's something that happens in the body of Christ that leads to being bewitched. And I worked for a while till I found the word that I wanted. And bewitched is the word. It's like you're falling into it. You get seduced. You step into it. You open a door. And you find yourself under a spell or bewitched. And it's the spirit coming on so many people. And in this form of it, it's like a bewitching that takes place over their minds over their lives and it's a mess they have to come out of it or it has a terrible ending to it so bewitched bewitched is kind of an unusual word it means like enchanted or delight someone or you cast a spirit over someone if you bewitch them so you enchant you cast a spirit over them so the king james version translates this word as bewitched one place that I wanted you to look at in your Bible. There's actually two of these. When the scripture talks about being bewitched, can you think of what examples they might use? One's in Acts 8. And it describes the effect that Simon the sorcerer had on the people of Samaria. The Samaritans were bewitched by Simon Magu's powers and activities. They were just caught up into it. It's an excitement, but it has an evil fringe to it. It has a tinge of something not being right. There's something core level that's just not right about this kind of bewitchment. And the Samaritans were caught up. They were overwhelmed with the wonder of his magic spells and gave great credibility to his words because he had great magical capabilities. And we see a lot of that today, that people are caught up in this mysterious, mystic sort of thing that doesn't have to do with the power of God. But the mistake that Simon made was he decided to see if he could mix his magical arts with the supernatural. And that is the worst of all. When people take a powerful gift of being filled with the Holy Spirit and they try to mix it with something that has evil in it. And you see the explosion here. Peter doesn't even cut him any slack. He says, I don't know if you can be forgiven. I mean, you see a strong word coming from Peter, but it comes from the word of bewitching. That the guy had that power over people, he used it in the evil form. When he saw what the Holy Spirit did, he immediately was interested in it and he wanted to combine the two. You can't take whatever's wrong with you and try to put the Holy Spirit mixed in with it. You can't mix these two. The other time that it's used, the word bewitch for the Greek word means under an evil influence or to be charmed by error. That is the last thing you want to do, is have yourself charmed by being in error in your interpretation of the scripture. And some people are very caught up in intellectually proud of their thinking. And they know their thinking's not right. They know there's something not quite right about it. But they're still just really caught up in how smart, how savvy, how smooth, how intellectual. But there's just something wrong with what they're saying. It comes in Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. What are you doing? You're going back on what you believed. And tonight, I'm going to tell you, hold to what you believe. You must hold it. As the evil comes on the world and as the seducing spirits and the deception comes all over us, you must stay true to the simplicity and the purity of what you learned in Jesus Christ in this scripture it's the most damaging of what can happen to your faith and that's you purposely go into some sort of era that makes you change your mind it's the opposite of truth truth completely changes you but this causes you to go into an era an evil influence and you're actually caught up and excited and charmed by it I would rather use the word excited By the evil in the enchantment of what takes place in it. Now let me tell you the two verses to use to come out of this or untwist yourself. Because some of you may have been caught up by fancies, just different doctrines that you saw that later you found out, oh, they're not quite right. Or you always knew something wasn't quite true with them. They didn't have that ring of truth. Repent of them. And stick to truth. Truth is different than anything else. See to it that nobody takes you captive. Colossians 2.8 would be the verse I would give you to come out of it. To repent of ever twisting scripture. Of ever getting caught up in error. And knowing you were messing with something, dabbling with something. Even when it's scriptural doctrines. You can get caught up in doctrines of demons. And what it leads to is what Colossians says it will take you captive. You do not want to go into captivity. That's the purpose of bewitchment. If you fall under the spell of being bewitched by someone who is off doctrinally, you will become captive. 2 Timothy 2.26 is another verse that you can use. They came to their senses and they escaped the snare of the devil, being captive to do his will. So the devil lays that snare, the snare of the fowler, the trap. But if you come to your senses, it's like what we talked about, the reality check, where you become loosed from that feeling, loosed from that allurement, you can break that spell off your life truth will set you free. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, what is it that leads us into this bewitchment? What leads us this way? Well, I dare say today that it's very odd what is coming on the earth. And it's a falseness. It's a counterfeit. And it's actually what I would call a soft gospel, a compassionate, a false compassion, a soulish compassion, humanitarian, becoming a champion of the flesh, and you compromise the hard lines of the gospel. And you wouldn't think that it would be in the area of softness or compassion that could lead you astray. But many fall off on that side. And this is what we're talking about here: is You meet the test of evil with a mentality of a cocker spaniel. <laughs> a cocker spaniel can discern whether it's someone good. They'll greet everyone. I mean, the cocker spaniel is just happy and wiggling his tail and licking you. And that's not how the Bible says to do it. It says, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So this humanitarian, this soft gospel, this thing that's even bringing us into different realms is a false gospel. It's not what Jesus was teaching us and it's not what the Bible is representing to you. So you've got and you must prepare yourself not to compromise during this time that we live in. This is where Paul says, stand firm in your faith. It's not that hard to make it through this okay. You can tell when you're being led into seduction, into captivity. You must pull out of it. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. Don't enjoy the enticement of it. You must stay out of it. You have to prepare yourself now not to compromise. Let me read you a beautiful verse in Psalm 119. This is a portion of that verse in 1-4. through Joyful. Are those who obey his laws and search for them with all their heart joy for you if you obey the law of the Lord and search with all your heart they do not compromise with evil and they only walk in his paths you have charged us to keep your Commandments carefully so the Lord has given you the ability to keep his Commandments carefully to not compromise do not compromise with evil and walk only in the path of the Lord. Search for Him with your heart. Joyful are those who obey His laws. Joyful are those who obey His laws. Joy is the true key. What the world offers is not joy. And what the world is offering is not true compassion. It's a counterfeit. It's humanitarian, and they do it apart from God. Who would believe that it's in the area of a falseness, in this area of softness, of sympathy, that could cause this much damage? Now, I've seen little pieces of this, but never is it parading like this in the street. So don't hold to Scripture, even subconsciously, Don't hold to something where deep inside you feel like you have more compassion in you than God does. That you're more compassionate towards people than God is. It's the wrong spirit. For God is love and we wouldn't even know what compassion or love is apart from Him. one time my dad gave me advice he said match me he said match it and I would tell you match the Lord be tough where he's tough be merciful where he's merciful because you'll enter into a spiritual pride if you fancy yourself more Than the Lord in an area. And usually it happens with someone that you have some sort of a spiritual soul tie to, where you have some kind of enticement. It's when you make some kind of an alliance with a person and it starts making you soften what you believe and know to be true about the Lord. It's a weakness, it's not really biblical compassion, it's soulish, it's selfish. And it's sympathy. You know this having this I feel sorry for you guilt does not get a person free. You're actually going to do more harm than good. You know one of you shared with me that you suddenly realized that your definition of love was just doing what they wanted. To be in that area of, of another one of just feeling sorry This is not what it takes to get the world free. You know, the first time I ever had the Lord speak to me on this subject, I was really, I'm going to use the word shocked and appalled because I was not expecting it. I was walking into TYC and I had on my mind one of my radio employees that I had failed with and it was going over and over in my mind constantly, I failed with this guy, I failed with this guy, he walked away from the Lord, I failed with him, I failed with him, I was walking, suddenly I felt the Lord rebuke me, and he said, do you think your methods are better than mine, like are you into the thing of improving upon my message, methods, he was like, "Uh, heaven had a split, Adam and Eve fell, Judas betrayed Jesus, I was having subtle thoughts inside of myself, if I do everything right, it'll work. If I do everything right, it'll work. And I was connecting to myself to get this person's freedom, rather than connecting to the Lord. Like when he was speaking to me of telling me, do you think you're an improvement on me? He was like, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so I realized suddenly I was in a realm or slipping into it because of that natural feeling of having mercy or the pressure or the responsibility on myself. And I realized this is not about me. This is about the Lord. And so you have to release yourself and let the Lord speak to you of he is the only one that is perfect. And yet like he said he said i had to write a new covenant not because the covenant was no good but because man failed the covenant and so from the very beginning of perfection of goodness people have fallen short and broken and he was not allowing me to get into that area of thinking i would bat a hundred percent when the lord himself lost judas So what it leads to is either on one side you're going to get into legalism and you're going to become very legalistic or if you take your heart in your hand and when you approach scripture, you approach the Lord, you approach others that you have your heart in your hand and it's true compassion being released and sometimes it looks a little tough sometimes the best thing you can do for someone is you present something that has strength to them. You know, over here we're getting into, they're replacing biblical teaching with social justice. (laughs) And it's a false sense of compassion where there is no compassion in it. There is no strength in it and there's no real love like the Lord is telling us to have. so We're going to take these different categories and I'm going to show you worst case scenario where this leads. And so the first one is kind of horrifying. And over the years I've had people come to me and say things like this and I had never put it all together. like. Put this all in one Bible study so that you could see it in one place. But as the days are growing tougher, as these days are growing where literally the spirit of witchcraft is coming on the earth, I want you to see the horror of where it leads. Now this is from a set of people that really seemingly had a walk with the Lord. And yet now it's just openly on the internet. And it's called, the article's called Sympathy for the Devil. So I thought if I took you from the worst one, it would help you see the progressive lines in it. It begins with, should we love Satan? This is one of those topics which is covered by blogs and articles and discussions and almost universally with the same conclusion. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. With a heavily implied, are you crazy? underlying this discussion. It is not my purpose here, this is not me speaking, this is the writer of this article. It is not my purpose here to define Satan. So feel free to hold to whatever definition you ascribe to Satan, be it the Old Testament adversary and God's employee, the post medieval antichrist figure, the metaphorical representation of all things evil. Musings on the nature and the substance of Satan could and do fill many books, and we needn't be distracted by them, though they're significant and sometimes even dominate part of people's theologies. Suffice it to say that we're talking about the embodiment of all things evil, irrespective of substance or residence. So, should we love the embodiment of evil? I want to take a moment to dwell on yes. These are some important questions. Again, I say, I'm quoting, I'm reading. Number one, does God care how we feel about supernatural entities? Does our love of Satan necessarily in part or whole enslave us to him? How does our relationship with evil change when we greet it with love? Firstly, and here many would disagree, I would say the scripture is ambivalent about our relationship with the metaphysical. What I mean by that is that when scripture gives instructions for our behavior, it doesn't specify whether angels, demons, and the like are covered. If anything, there is a sense that these things are beyond us and that they're in a sense on God's turf and we should just focus on ourselves and our place within creation as a whole. I think this is a lot to commend, but I'm also aware that many people feel tormented, attacked, and in constant state of warfare with evil forces embodied and otherwise. We are to hate evil but love our enemies. We are in a popular phrase to love the sinner and hate the sin. But can we love the embodiment of sin? Is Satan a sinner or sin itself? I propose that Satan is not sin itself. Falstaff declares in Henry IV, I am not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in other men. Falstaff is the model and the source of wit, as Satan is the model and source of sin. But wit... And sin here are disembodied principles, the product of acts, not substance themselves. In most Christian theologies of the devil, there is a transformation of some sort, a fall, a rebellion, so that our sense of the devil focused on an entity which was not sinful, but then became so. Scripture tells us the devil will not be redeemed, but does not tell us the devil is and always was sin. So perhaps we should mourn Satan, the only thing named in all of creation whose fate is foretold, inescapable, disconnected from grace, from free will, from salvation. Some early theologians found this ideal to be so abhorrent they imagined some kind of ultimate redemptive grace, even for Satan. Maybe even specially for Satan, a true pan-physical universalism. Because with Satan there is an ultimate conundrum. He is part of creation, part of God's evil plan. Evil is meant to be among us. I cannot fathom a theology in which there was a cataclysmic oops in the garden, and the creation since then has been going completely against his plan, with him staring on helplessly. So there is meant to be evil. There is a reason for it, far from our understanding, as it may sometimes seem. So if we love this doomed creature, does that play into his hands? I think at heart that this is a pharisaical ideal that we need to avoid contact with evil. Jesus encounters evil time and a time again and greets it time and time again with agape. Even in the wilderness there is no hate. I've always been struck by Jesus in the wilderness. It runs an extended lengthy debate not as an epic battle. Why? Because Satan has no hope for victory. Jesus is calm because he has no cause for alarm. And on the cross, that victory is made eternal. On the cross, we share in Jesus' victory. It is our right. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is not a power reserved for Jesus. This is ours. James is clear. Resist the devil. The devil flees. Easy, no, why? Easy, no, why? We tend to describe it to our own weakness in sort of an indistinct, generic way. We are weak, undefined, unelaborated. I increasingly wonder if that weakness is because our own love is limited. If you love Satan, then the reach of agape through you is infinite. There is no evil incapable of your forgiveness, no enemy beyond your love, no action beyond redemption. If you hate Satan and hate evil, then you create a safe haven for bitterness, a resting place for your hatred, for your lack of forgiveness, a secret cache where you can hide away all the things outside your ability to love. What we have then done is to categorize, to scale evil to our own design, and by exclusion to limit love to our own design. These things I can love, these things I cannot, and there lies a foothold for hatred. Loving Satan is not loving evil. It is not condoning or worse, celebrating suffering, depravity, and destruction. By loving Satan, we are making a declaration that contrary to intuition, Satan is powerless to us. In loving Satan, we are declaring God's love through all of us over all creation. If you love Satan, there is no place for hate to hide, no recess, no crevice, no darkness into which our light will not shine. Perhaps it is in hating Satan that Satan wins. In hating Satan, we relinquish our victory." Wow. It almost felt blasphemous to even say these words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Josh Watson. And it's a John Watson. And it's on a website. So this is where I was going to tell you to go. You can take any doctrine and put these words to it and start finding yourself in a place you don't want to end up. If you feel like you're swallowing a toad, you may be swallowing a toad. So that's where I was going to tell you from the strongest of terms, you must reject this concept of making any kind of alliance with evil. You know, I've heard people tell me, I'm just praying for Satan to get saved. If there's not already enough to pray for. Okay, so I took you to a very extreme viewpoint, but it's not becoming extreme anymore if you look at who it is. If you look at whose website this is on. But I'm showing you this to show how it's moving on us. The same thing is true when we move in of different things the enemy has talked us into doing. The next one I'm going to bring up is Judas. And I want to study him in context of this sort of movement. There's a funny thing with Judas. that's different about him than anyone else. And it's how the Bible will deal with him. And we'll go over this part of the verse because this is what I want to center in. But there's a difference between Judas and Peter. And I want you to make the distinction Because if you don't, it's where the witchcraft starts pouring down on people. That's where the thing with Satan, I don't even have words for what that guy's opening up to himself. So, I want us to think about our group. Can you think about over time with the Cross Lines group, there'll be someone in our group who we just suddenly, we just get done with that person. they've manipulated, they've lied, they were disloyal, they exasperated everyone's mercy and as it's known about our group we will take in anybody I mean you can have some of the most unusual things in your past and we will love you through them but there's a certain amount of manipulation that comes in or lying or exasperation or lack of repentance that makes our group suddenly go Uh, we're done with you. Like, until you get something right with God, we can't do anything more to help you. Now, other people will come in and rescue that person and lift them up and have mercy on them and and start the whole thing until you look over there and their whole group is falling apart. But this happens in the area of not just normally a spirit, but when it involves witchcraft control when it involves the bewitchment, when it involves an enchantment, when it involves a spell over someone where your will becomes captive. And there's certain people that can use manipulation, even as a passive, they can use manipulation. Some people are overt aggressive manipulators, but they can use it in such a way they keep someone always under their spell, under their manipulation. So you're going to feel the same feeling in how the disciples were. If you didn't guess it, they were done with Judas. The way they speak about Judas, there is no compassion with them. It has been trampled on. He has trampled their hearts to pieces. They're done with it. I think part of it they felt terrible because they didn't spot it in him to begin with. But you can sense this over the next group who, like us, they'd had it with this character or his lack of character. So in John 13, 27, I would say that the problem with Judas is he did it in the presence of Jesus. In 27, it says, Jesus said, It is whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped it, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. And immediately after the communion, Satan entered him. And he watched him leave the Last Supper fully engulfed in a spirit of treason. Fully engulfed in a spirit of treason. What's odd about this spirit is once it's happened, you almost can't quit talking about it. There's someone right now that, on the national stage of leadership, and he got betrayed. And he can't quit mentioning it. Because once that betrayal takes place, you're just, you don't have words because they came in so close. The rise and fall of Judas Iscariot, the spiritual forefather of Benedict Arnold, (laughs) like the ultimate traitor. Think of someone who did you dirty, who pretended. Judas seemed motivated if Jesus established his kingdom that he would be, say, in a position, probably treasurer. <laughs> he would have an important position. But when Jesus repeatedly refused to become a political messiah, Judas turned against him. Judas wanted to run things, or at least he wanted to benefit by them. He wanted to, you know, have his treasury going on. And I think it's odd about people because Judas is an odd guy. There are people that are so controlling. And they have such a spirit of control, they will tell you what to do. And if you don't take their advice, they take it personally. It's like a personal affront. And Judas was that type that he so had it made out in his mind how it was supposed to be. That he could not live with it. This is the same thing that we find that I've never seen this before in a friend of my brother's. And the guy just made a suggestion to him. And when he didn't take that piece of advice, you would think it was the ultimate break in loyalty. And you see this here that Judas just can't make peace with it. So in John 17 verse 12, Jesus in reference to Judas Iscariot says this of all his disciples. And it's very unusual because this is the word that I want you to pick up on. None of them have been lost. Not one disciple that I've been given has been lost. Now this is called Jesus' priestly prayer and he's praying to God. And he's thanking the father that he was able to take care of all these guys, their families. And he says, everything you gave to me, God, I'm giving back to you. And not one of them were lost. But then he makes an exception clause. But listen to the words. Accept the son of perdition. Now, what does perdition mean? P-E-R-D-I-T-I-O-N. Perdition. Jesus mentions that you kept them protected and kept them safe so that none of them were lost except the son of perdition. And what does perdition mean? The Latin root, perdere, means to do away with, destroy, lose, throw away, squander, or spiritually The condition of damnation, spiritual ruin, state of souls in hell. That is, the one who is already damned to this state. Wow, what a word. No wonder we don't use it often. The phrase simply means a man doomed to destruction. The person is in an unredeemable state. Someone who actually is damned while he is still alive. Now these are words that man has come up with that, th- that it means. And it could be their leanings of their theology on different things, but it kind of gives you the idea that the damnation lives within the man. The destruction lives within him. And let's see if we can see when this took place. Jesus has an exception. The one person that was lost was the son of perdition. Jesus, the disciples, I didn't lose one, except the one who crept out, and he sold his soul (laughs) to the devil, and he was sneaky. Now, it's based off of prophecy, because he says that the prophecy was fulfilled. It says in Psalm 41, 9, the betrayal itself was prophesied hundreds of years before its fulfillment. There was going to be someone in the inner group that would betray Jesus up close. David he cried out in prophecy in the same way in Psalm 55 12 through 14 he said if it were an enemy who were insulting me I could endure it if a foe were rising up against me I could hide but is you a man like myself my companion my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God As we walked about among the worshipers. So David expresses a betrayal at the deepest of levels. Someone that he considered up close to him a companion. You know Job, bless his heart, he had every kind of pain. But his emotional pain was also foreshadowed in Jesus' sorrow. Those I love have turned against me. And that's Job 19.19. So you see this in Matthew 26:24, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of Him. But woe to the man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. What a concept. I mean, what on earth are these words? It would have been good for that man if he had never been born the next verse verse 25 and judas who was betraying him answered said surely it's not i rabbi and he said to him you've said it yourself surely it's not i in mark 14:21 better for him to not have been born you know the scary thing about what people do with judas is they don't take the betrayal seriously And it's the same thing that happens when a group that loves the Lord is suddenly done with someone. The next person does not take into account why are they done with them? Why is their compassion exhausted? Because I'm talking about where you extend true fellowship with them, true compassion. And you see different versions of this, but if you ever get a chance to read Don Richardson's book, Peace Child, he tells about where he went to an island in the Pacific he worked forever to learn the language and to win these natives to the lord and he was so happy when he was able to break the language code be able to translate the gospel and to give them the gospel where they could understand about jesus and much to his horror and his dismay you'd rather watch the movie it's an old 50s movie I think Reader's just put it out back when the magazines used to enjoy the Lord. But anyway, so horror of horrors. After he got the gospel to this lost tribe, when they heard the gospel, they exclaimed it with joy. And they began to worship Judas. Don Richardson was so upset, he could not believe that he had spent his life Working with this tribe. When they heard the gospel. Their hero was Judas. Because in their tribe. The highest thing you could do. Is to act like you are somebody's friend. And then trick them. And betray them. Thank goodness the story doesn't end there. Don Richardson was going to leave. And be done with this stupidity of a tribe. The ones that worship the betrayal. And we look over at the primitive natives and go, how stupid are they? We can't believe they're doing that. But are we? Do we have a sense of that inside of ourselves? Don Richardson, the Lord gave him an idea, and he found something within their culture to lead them to repentance. It's a remarkable story of redemption. It's a powerful story. It should be given on every Easter morning, the story of what Don Richardson did. Perhaps I should give it. But Don Richardson found a way to show them the power of redemption. Because they worship the power of betrayal. So this is what we're dealing with in Judas. Whereas many disciples deserted him, Judas remained to betray him. <laughs> you would kind of hope that the bad ones leave. <laughs> Not all who remain are great. What was Jesus' compassion like? How did he handle it? In John six seventy, because in, in John six sixty-six, don't you like that number? Many of the disciples deserted him. Judas remained. But in verse seventy, three verses down, he says, One of you is a devil. So Jesus called it out. One of you is a devil. Strong words. Let's call him the A-W-O-L disciple. He went AWOL. Judas, what was his crimes? Money was a source of contention with him. It doesn't need to be a source of contention with you. It needs to be your servant. Judas stayed contained. He is not shown to have led others to ruin. Very interesting that this was not a man that caused others to go off with him. He stayed contained. To be as evil as he is, it's shocking that it didn't get on anyone else. And that shows the power of Jesus, that he kept the evil contained and off the other 11. Because what witchcraft tries to do is it seduces others around it. It's that 11 that gets in and just makes a mess out of everything. So as we're looking at Judas's motives, you see, and the house was filled with the fragrance of wool in John 12, 1 through 8. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, see the disciples, they're tired of him, the one who would betray him. They let you all through there. They're, they're letting you know. This one's the Iscariot. It's not the other Judas. Why was this fragrance and oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I'm going to tell you, people with a spirit of witchcraft can make their motives seem like they have a lot of compassion it's what they hide behind. It's what political parties are doing now. Oh, there's so much tolerance, compassion. It's the wrong spirit. Judas stole petty amounts of money, lusted for money, coveted, desired perhaps a place in the throne room next to a warrior king. But he did not compete for the leadership. So not only did he not spread it, he didn't seem to want to take over Jesus's place. During this time, he seemed to be following Jesus, enough so that the other disciples didn't spot it on him, even though occasionally Jesus would call him a devil. Except that when the woman anointed Jesus with expensive perfume, Judas was outraged, saying the money should have been given to the poor. It says, motive, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In other words, he had the money box and he used to take out of the money box. And so he wanted to make sure that money box stayed full. And so this is the pettiness of Judas. Just petty. Just petty. And look what it did to him. This is where witchcraft has its way with him. In Luke 22:3, we enter now into the possession. We see that Satan entered into Judas before Judas went to see the chief priest and set things up to betray Jesus. In Luke 22.3, Satan entered Judas. This is what bewitchment does. It enters you. It's a spirit that gets inside of you. Satan possessed Judas. That's a horrible thing to think that Satan can enter a person's body. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. John thirteen twenty seven. The possession of witchcraft. This is what witchcraft is ultimately trying to do to you. Possess you. Own you. Captive. Let you lose all sense of right and wrong. Take your mind over. Betray those that you really love. It's centered around Jesus. And just like it was there with his first coming, it is there with his the second. And this is where it enters from the possession where Judas was filled with Satan. And then it says that he went into the night, into the dark. That's how John tells it. I mean, it's so the way that here, take the bread, do it quickly, and then it was dark. How it says it, the possession. But it moves from the possession to the personal. It's the fake kiss. It's so personal. What really stands out as the mode of Jesus' betrayal is that Judas used such an intimate expression of love and respect to betray Jesus. Judas's actions were hypocritical, in the extreme. His actions said, I respect you, I honor you, at the exact time he was betraying Jesus to be murdered. Judas' actions were like Proverbs 27.6, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but deceitful. Are the kisses of an enemy. That scripture is prophetic of the kiss that Jesus would receive. The best way to disguise yourself if you're an enemy is to pretend to be a friend. It wasn't betrayal at a distance. Right there together with Jesus for three years and then right in his face at the darkest moment of his life. It was at that moment Judas kissed. I want to make the difference for Peter. It was in the power of presence that Peter repented. When Jesus got close to Peter, Peter broke. When Jesus got close to Judas, he kissed. It was a prearranged signal. In Matthew 26:50, Jesus responded by saying, Friend, do what you're here to do. You don't see any pretense with Jesus. You don't see him negotiating with Judas to repent. You don't see that call. He did with Peter. He invited Peter to pray. He told Peter, I'm praying for you. He invited Peter to repent. He told him what to do. He, I mean, Ju- Jesus worked Peter over with Judas. He would say, friend, do what you're here to do. Do what you do quickly. Get it over with. Betrayal was in his heart. Now he who was betraying him gave him a sign. And he said, Hell, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Mark 14, 43. Luke 22:48 48. Quotes Jesus saying, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you really doing this? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? In this way, the Son of Man was betrayed with a kiss. This is verse 48. Once Judas gave the kiss, his part was over. All he had to do, one kiss. Jesus' arrest immediately follows. Judas went. He went alone. He went and threw the money back. He couldn't stand it. He took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw them. Witchcraft seduces you to do what you never believed that you would do. You know what Judas did? He went into himself. He was preferring to pay his own debt. The best thing you can do is let Jesus pay your debt. But Judas took it on himself to pay his own debt. Judas chose the second path, punishing himself by suicide. When money meant everything, then it means nothing. There's a point in your life when whatever it is that keeps you from the Lord, whatever it is that stands, that tempts you, that stands between you and the Lord, it'll mean everything to you and in one split second it'll mean nothing. And that's when Judas took the money and he threw it. All your life it was everything and then it happens in a day that it means nothing. It's empty. It's forever. You know, the end of Judas' life was just like what we're seeing as it builds in its complexity. And in the way it unfolds, it's just completely out of control now. Now, he's the first son of perdition. Who's the second son of perdition? Who's the second? Jesus was the son of perdition. Perdition. Who is the second son of perdition? It's not a word we want to use often. I don't think of... Do you know who the second one was? Choose one more time. And people's discernment wasn't good on the first one. Probably won't be good on the second one. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2 3. The first time it's used is John 17:12. It's the priestly prayer. Now it's 2 Thessalonians. The son of perdition will appear good to the extent that the unwary will be deceived into thinking he is even from God or the second coming of Christ. He will pretend to be religious, but will appear to be the superman everyone is desperate for. Many will follow this figure straight into eternal damnation, but everyone has a choice. The Bible describes the behavior of the one who worships Jesus Christ. Take heed of one first John 4 1 and test the spirits. You must. You must be able to recognize the Spirit. So called the Son of Perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2 9. It tells us more about it in Revelation 13. And they worshiped the dragon who gave unto them the beast. And they worshiped the beast and said, Who's like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given to him to continue forty two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given to him over all the kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. This one will be worshipped. By everyone in the world except. All that dwell on the earth shall worship him, who are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And this is where I would say we have to be careful because so many people are downplaying the mark of the beast. I heard a guy who, I changed churches at this point, when he said that the mark of the beast was not literal. He defined the mark of the beast as just not asking Jesus into your heart. And I'm like 2,000 years before it happens, it is explained, there will be a mark. And it will cause everyone to be caught up in a system and taken captive. Something very literal. We can go into that later. But what I'm telling you is there are two sons one is Judas, and one is the Antichrist. And they have been prophesied they will come. It's the spirit that's already up on the earth. You know in this as we move down the list there are different types of stands that we have to take and we're going to look here at the maternal pastoral side of not being tough there's a tough side of God not having the Lord's discernment sometimes you accept people's tears without repentance actions without genuineness It says Judas was seized with remorse in Matthew 27, 3 over what he had done. He gave the money back to the temple authorities and hanged himself out of guilt. Verse 5. It says that Esau realized that he had lost the birthright and he cried. He wept great tears of remorse. Do not confuse that with repentance. This kind of crying... It might be, as Amanda once told me, it's just when your flesh is weeping. Remorse is not the same. And there's this false sense of what we're talking about here, of a maternal or a pastoral love. where there, It's a false sense where they're not willing to take the tough side of love. You know, I know when mom was first teaching, she adamantly taught a lesson on God does not test. And it put her in some quandaries and so i came back and i told mom i said let's redo this lesson because this is where we're putting our footprint down we're going to say how god does not test with evil but how he does test completely with a lot of fun with those who belong to him so how god does test and how god does not test with evil So God does not test you with evil. That's what James says. But does he test you? You better believe it. So I moved it back a notch. Refined it. Because we can get even into defending God. To the point that we move into something. Even universalism. You know universalism comes a lot of times with the difficulty of the burden of evangelism universalism it's in this ideal here of being afraid of the tough love of the Lord it's only taking that one side of Jesus where he picked up the lambs and carried them on his shoulder but not the one where he picked up the whip you've got to marry inside of you mercy and truth if you're going to move into leadership you've got to have the strength in universalism it's a fear it goes to the extreme of saying everyone's going to heaven. You'll hear people say, well, we're all God's children. But what is so lacking and in what is so deficit, what is so much at loss here, there's one huge thing they're leaving out. It doesn't take the death of the cross it doesn't take the payment it doesn't take that it took something perfect something innocent dying in place of me that my sin made me guilty and it's trying to have a world that has no sin nor consequence of sin and doesn't realize that something had to intervene and take my place and that's where the heart of where universalism falls apart is an unwillingness to take the sacrifice an unwillingness to put the cross in its proper position and realize without the cross and the resurrection, I have no hope for eternity because for all who sin must die. So if it doesn't take the cross and the death that was on that cross of the innocent dying in my place, then it also doesn't take a personal relationship. And that, my friend, is where it falls apart. It doesn't take the personal responsibility that you must share your faith. And if you don't, it must be balanced with Ezekiel 3.18 that says, When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And you don't give him a warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. You warn the wicked in order to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I shall require from your hands. Universalism says that there's no blood on them and you sure ever hear them saying that there's blood on you for not warning them. It takes the dual, it takes the double responsibility that perhaps why that 15 year old in another country, wherever you're going to place the age of accountability, doesn't know the gospel is because most Christians don't take the responsibility to share their faith. Most are not sold out. Most have not made it a priority to preach the gospel and to preach the cross. Oh, there's falseness here, there everything, from all the movie stars and celebrities being in heaven, to your favorite person that whether well, they've never known Christ to Hitler being in heaven. But there's an unwillingness to go there, the false sympathy of the maternal. The pastors who won't discipline their people, who won't give accountability, but won't preach anything but encouragement and mercy. Those who run from the harder scriptures in the Bible, the bunny rabbits, (laughs) the avoidance of the unpleasant. That's where we have people that refuse to look at anything tough. They're like, don't give me that. I don't want to hear that verse. And some people have tried to manage their life in such a way that they've never let them look at anything hard or tough. And they refuse to grow. It's like the perpetual state of being a child. It never grows them up into what the Lord tells you to be. It's so much compassion of the fake kind, the false kind, the kind that Judas offered. It's to the face, but it's not of the heart. It's not sincere, nor is it genuine. It's a soft gospel, humanitarian, champion of the flesh, and they compromise the hard lines. Revelation says it is very important that we do not tolerate, and he names two people, and he says they have a spirit on them, and we will go into their lives later, but the spirit on the first guy is compromise. And you must prepare yourself to not compromise during this time. For it is the spirit of Balaam. And then the other person in Revelation that it tells you, do not tolerate. You must not allow this spirit. You have to be able to run off Jezebel. The seduction that God says, I have this against you. And we shall look again because these are the spirits that are beguiling bewitching, charming. And the church has not raised up a hand against them. The church has not said anything. They do not know how to handle this particular spirit. They have not prepared their heart to not compromise. And we see what has happened in the last two years to show us what the church looks like in this state. It's weak it's falling apart it has no strength of their love the love is not tough it is strong it's the strength of love sometimes my anger is just a fierce fierce form of compassion a fierce form of love you know you're gonna have to be willing to acknowledge the enemy and someone you love we can think of people we know And they cannot even bear to think that someone they love might have the enemy in them. But not so with Jesus. He was tough on the one he loved. He loved Peter. And in Matthew 16, verse 19, he said, Peter, it's upon this rock I will build my church. And he named him the rock. And Peter was swooning in the moment. (laughs) This was the grand and glorious moment. It was worth all the strength and, and chutzpah and everything he had put forth at this moment to be that kind of disciple that was first out of the boat. Be the kind that he wanted. Only to 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Four verses later, Jesus looks at Peter and it says, Satan, get behind me. And he rebuked Peter. Or he rebuked Satan in Peter. (laughs) Sometimes your friend opens their mouth and all of heaven is in them. And you go, there's no way you could have known that except God revealed that to you. And as they are swooning in themselves four verses down, the devil bars that same mouth. (laughs) And speaks to you. And it's the devil himself because he puts his interest on man's interest, not God's. The rebuke. You cannot say you love someone if you cannot issue a rebuke. You must love someone enough to have the strength to be able to help that person get through this world we're living in. You have to keep that spirit of bewitchment off of them. You have to call it what it is. It's what Jesus did with the rich young ruler when it says he felt a love for him. And then he told him. It's birth out of a deep love when someone cares enough about you to confront you. Where they don't leave that mess in you. Where they don't say, well, I appreciate the encouragement you're giving me, Peter. I understand why you're saying that. But he called it for what it was that Satan himself was speaking through him. So this goes from not only Judas, who completely had a possession of Satan take place, to Peter, who Satan spoke out of his mouth and used Peter's mouth. You must be willing to acknowledge the enemy in someone you love. Let me just say this, especially in someone you love. This is what I call accountability in relationship. This is where you don't let certain words stand. This is where you take a strong stand when it's something that absolutely will wreck their life. It's when they're giving you correction that is not out of the heart of God. For Peter, Jesus loved him. And he told him, Peter, if you love me, it'll show, tend my sheep. And I say that the church has gotten so weak in their whole life, they've never rebuked one person. Nor have they ever acknowledged Satan in them. I have seen this scripture taken and preached from the pulpit and said it did not mean this. It's a mindset. It's not literally Satan. And they go into all kinds of rigmarole when they don't understand that the Hebrew word, it was actually the personal name given to him used throughout the whole New Testament. Because we are so afraid of their speaking such a word. What are we doing? And we think we're ready for a harsh climate. (laughs) to be the overcomers and the ones we have to be willing to with all the strength and love inside of us I'm not talking about loving people less I'm not talking about turning into that pit bull over there and tearing people apart I'm not talking even about being snarky or snide I'm talking about having love for somebody so much that you'd rather lose the relationship than have that person lose their standing with the Lord It's the deepest form of love. It's the most compassion. Compassion heals. Compassion, you can never get enough. What we're talking about is a cheap counterfeit that we have traded for this weak Jesus that we somehow preach. Watch Narnia. (laughs) He walks as a lawn. (laughs) They said he is good. But he may not be tame. <laughs> I have not met the tame Jesus. This melted down thing that we call where we can't say anything but yes. Having someone in your life where you agree with everything they say and never once disagree. Thinking the submissiveness. I'm not talking about growth or maturity or or not understanding things. I'm talking about where you are afraid to tell someone you love what's true. When we place our desires and that of others ahead of the Word of God. In Acts 5, 4, the death in the church occurred because of this. It says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And this is the spirit. This is the compromise. This is what we call submission. This is what we have said. Oh, this is the role that we must have. We, thou shalt not <laughs> be unchristian and violate this rule or this role. And they buried them. When something doesn't feel right, you're dealing with the spirit of compromise, which leads... To the betrayal, which leads to that spirit of witchcraft and possession taking over. So, I would tell you to take seriously when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the lover of our soul, the one that carries the sheep and the lamb on his shoulders, who takes the prodigal back, there are some scriptures that he tells you that you must adhere to. One of them he tells you in Matthew 7, 6, don't cast your pearls before pigs. He's not talking about pigs here. He's talking about people pigs. (laughs) There's some things that have value that there are some that do not understand value. And then he talks about in Matthew 18, 17 when someone sins, go to them privately and try to win your brother. Every time it says win your brother. And then it says if they don't listen, take someone with you. And maybe they'll listen to the two of you and win your brother. But if they don't listen, then tell it to the believers. The strong believers, the ones that are two or three assembled in together that love that person. So that you can win them. If the person still refuses to listen to those that are around him, and the whole group is saying, you're still off. Something doesn't feel right. Then Jesus says, you do Shunning. And he put it in the worst, ugliest terms you could possibly say. He says, treat that person like you don't know them, like they're a Gentile. Then he goes, okay, you don't quite get that. Treat them like they're an IRS agent. (laughs) Because, did you know, that when you run to them and start trying to beg them back and acting like everything's okay, you're doing harm to them. Because that manipulation is empowered by you. When you run and just compassionately just oh please 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 we beg you. You're doing opposite than what the Lord said to do. Now if you've never ever said anything to them. That's different. Then you're in trouble. So tonight I wanted you to see that. It's like we have a church but they have no bones in them. It's just like a bag of flesh with fat. A few organs in there, but there's no bone structure. And you've got to have that strength that where love has that ability to carry your frame and to carry others. That you have that strength that you need of the Lord. To not enter into a witchcraft spirit where you're lying to yourself and you're telling yourself you're Jesus. And you're actually like that angel of light that appears to deceive people. It's a false gospel. And said to you, is who has bewitched you? You've lost your mind. You started out right. Who's taking you captive? Don't mix the supernatural power you have with the authority of the believer and the supernatural gifts and mix it with something magical and charming and and someone that doesn't have it right and they're mixing everything inside of them These two do not, cannot, must not mix. For this is that spirit that's coming on the earth and it's meant to seduce.